The Bible says a lot about living a separated life. You don't hear a lot about it today in, in the churches today because it's not that popular a subject with our flesh. Our, our flesh doesn't like the idea of living separate from the world. Our flesh wants to blend in, become accepted, and do all the things everybody else does, and yet we want to go to heaven and all the blessings of God, so we want to try to live in two different worlds, but the Bible says you can't do that. And, but it talks about, we're looking at it not so much from the point of view of do's and don'ts, but we're looking at it out of Matthew chapter 5, and you don't need to turn there. Matthew 5, uh, 13 and 14 talks about, Jesus tells his disciples, and therefore us, he said, you are the salt of the earth. Of course, salt has two main purposes. One of the purposes is to, is to enhance the flavor of food and your appetite for food. And the other purpose of salt, although we don't need it so much that nowadays as we have refrigeration, is it was a preservative. But the significant thing he says about salt is he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, then it's lost its value. And we're looking at it from the point of view that Jesus says the church, we the church, his body in the, in the earth today are salt to this earth. And in order to be salty, we have to be willing to be different from the earth. And in fact, what he's saying there is when the church loses its difference from the world, it's lost its effectiveness and its purpose. doesn't mean he doesn't love us. We're not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. We've lost our purpose and our effectiveness. And my concern is I really, as I look around and I even see, feel the pressures in my life, I just look at the church in general, this church and just churches in general. There's tremendous pressure on us to blend into the world, to be accepted by the world, more pressure than there's ever been before to, to be politically correct and socially correct and tolerate everything. In the pro- process of tolerating everything, we accept everything and we become like everything. And if we do that, we lose our purpose. If we lose our purpose, we lose our course of direction. If we lose our course of direction, we lose our ability to not just survive, but to succeed and fulfill our purpose in the earth. And so if your goal is to survive as a Christian, if your goal is to make it, you probably won't. I'm not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. You will, you will eventually stumble and fall. It's like, trying to, it's like trying to dock a boat in a stream that's fast moving. I've told you this story before. The one thing it takes to do to have the better, greater control of a boat is the one thing your instincts tells you won't work, and that's to go faster. Because the faster that water moves over that rudder, the more control you have. But the fear is, if I go fast, I'm going to have to make quicker decisions. So the tendency is to slow it down, because that way I have longer to make the decision. But the slower you go, is that right, Gordon? The less control that you have, because the water is passing over that rudder more slowly and doesn't react as quickly. And so the same is true as a Christian. In order to be successful, in order to make it through, in order to be more than conquerors, you have to accept the purpose that you have and go for it with all the gusto. You have to go for broke for it. It's called living a consecrated or separated life. And it's, it's hard on our flesh, but it's what we're made to do, and it's where the anointing is. There's no anointing in being lazy. There's no anointing in blending in with the world. The only anointing, the only strength that you get, the only help that you get from the Holy Spirit is when we stand up to do what we're called to do. Now, He'll help you do it, but you've got to make that he'll wait for your act of your will the Bible says he helps us in our prayers he helps us and that word means he takes hold together with us against the situation he doesn't do it for us he takes what you're taking hold against and joins in with you and gives you the ability so that's what we're looking at and we've talked about what it means to be a separated life it doesn't mean being weird strange it may be different but it doesn't mean being weird and strange it also doesn't mean being isolated
translated on the other extreme. What it basically means is being like Christ. That's really what it boils down to. Be willing to not only be identified with His name, but to act like Him, talk like Him, function like Him, regardless of who's around us and regardless of the consequences. He did that, and aren't you glad He did? Because if He didn't, He never would have gone to the cross because that was not comfortable to His flesh. We know that because in Matthew's account, three times He pled with God to let Him out of it. So obviously His flesh didn't want to do it, but He had to have that under control so He could submit it to God's will for His life so that He could go and do what God sent Him here to do, which was to die in your place and my place. If He hadn't done that, we would, I know where we'd all be. We'd all be on our way down and not up. Okay. All right. So we've been looking at that. We've been looking over the last few weeks at different obstacles that the Bible tells us, things that get in our way. So we know what the, what, what, the, what, the, what the traps are that are pulling at us. The first one we saw, and this is the most powerful one, is the temptation to be in love with the world and the things of the world. It doesn't just mean cars and toys and money. It can mean the way the world thinks, the attitudes of the world. It means in love with the world's approval, which leads us into the second major obstacle, which is the one we're talking about now, which is the fear of man. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man is a snare to us, a trap. So one of the things that Satan works very hard in a young person's life is to build on them a sense of insecurity if he can work through his parents, if they can work through the situation. Because when they grow up with that sense of insecurity, they're going to have to try to get that met through the approval of other people. And the enemy has sown that into your life as a snare, a trap, so that he can ultimately control you and not the Spirit of God that's in you once you're born again. But praise God, God always has an answer, doesn't He? Because Jesus said, if you come to me and ask of me, I will give you rivers of living water, water that satisfies that need to be accepted, satisfies that need to be approved, satisfies that need of value. God can fill that hole in you like... In fact, He's the only one that can fill it. And if you'll learn to draw on that well of water, if you'll learn to draw on Him and on His love, and that takes work, that takes renewing your mind, it takes meditating on the Word, it takes consciously going after It's not going to drop in you like a pill. It's going to be something you go after. You find the scriptures that say God loves you and you meditate on those scriptures. When you wake up in the night, instead of, you know, doing something else, meditate on those scriptures. God loves me. And first, the things we learned in this, in, in, in renewing the mind, you may not feel anything, you may not see anything, but if you keep doing it over and over and over again, slowly but surely, it's working its way down until at some point it's going to drop down in you. God loves me. And when you do, it changes your way. Fear of death, fear of the world will go away because the love of God will be so... Paul's secret. He says, because I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that whether I live or I die, whether angels come to me or demons come to me, whether things that happen now or things that might happen in the future, whether the best things, the height, or the worst things to the best happen to me, or any created thing, I'm convinced nothing can separate me from the love of God that's been given to me in Christ Jesus. So we've talked about the fear of man and the snare it is. Well, what's the answer? Well, we look, began to look at that last time. The Bible tells us that it is the fear of God that delivers us from the fear of man. And we began to talk about the fear of God last week because it's not 
a fun subject to get into until you understand what it is. We began to look that there's two parts of it. So we saw in Acts chapter 9, let's go there quickly. And then we're going to look at another scripture that tells us this. Acts 9 verse 3. No, it's not Acts 9 verse 3. 31, thank you. That's exactly right. Then the churches throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified or built up. How did they do that? By walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So we see that there's two sides to God's nature in dealing with us. We're going to look at that again tonight. Let's go over to Romans chapter 11. We'll see another scripture that says the same thing in a different way. Now Paul's talking here about the grace and the mercy of God. He's talking about Israel. And he says basically that Israel had their chance. God gave them the oracles, the word. God gave them an opportunity, but they chose the law instead of the grace. They chose, as we talked about on Sunday night, Sunday morning, they chose to worship the ark instead of the God of the ark. They chose the religion instead of the God that the religion pointed them to. And that's the context Paul's talking about here. And he's talking about, but don't, as the church, we're not to get proud because the, the, the Israel is the, is the native branch and we as the Gentiles have been grafted into it. But he says, don't get too proud because what he's going to say, if, if they were broken off because of their unbelief, how much more can the grafted in branch get broken off? So here we're going to pick up with that. Verse 18, do not boast against the, branch, against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do, do not, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So will you say then that the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in? In other words, were the Jews rejected so that the church, the Gentiles may be brought in? Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. Not because God was mad at them, because they choose, chose to not believe in the Messiah, they were separated out, they were broken out. That we uh, broken off, and you stand by faith. In other words, what makes the difference between the Jews that God came to initially and the church and the Gentiles now is that they chose not to believe and you chose to believe. It's not because God loved you better. It's not because you were smarter. It's not because you were wiser. It's not because you were anything else. You just chose to believe where they chose not to believe. That's what he's talking about here. All right, just so you understand the context here. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. In other words, you're not just some favorite. You're in the body of Christ because you chose to believe where they chose not to. But if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Therefore, and this is what we're going to get to, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell severity, 
and but towards you, goodness, if you continue in the goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. Now don't get afraid. We're going to put this in context and explain it to you. All right. Now, I told you last week that there are two sides to the fear of the Lord. One side is what we talked last week, which was out of Romans chapter 8, which is understanding that, that, that the, reason we, the reason we don't have to fear man, the reason we don't have to fear any other situation is because of how much God loves us and what God's done for us. God's there. That's why Paul said, I'm persuaded that nothing that comes at me can separate me from the love of God. And we saw last week as we went through Romans 8, starting around in verse 28, starts out, because we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And He talks about those whom He predestined, He called, He, he chose, whom He chose, He justified, whom He justified, He glorified. What shall we say to these things of God's force? Who can possibly be against us? So we looked at what God has done for us on His own. He initiated the grace that He's lavished upon us, the provision that He's made for us. He's underpinning us. He's holding us up. He's working in our lives to cause things in our lives to work together for good. He's working in ways you don't even know He's working to bring you to a place of maturity, to bring you a place of victory, to bring you to where He wants you to be. He's on your side. So the, the, the fear of God, the comfort of God, and the goodness of God... Is underlies everything because God by nature is love. Understand that. If you understand that, then everything you read about God, you will filter through the idea that whatever God's doing, He's doing out of love. It changed how I read my Bible. Because I used to read things like this in the Old Testament and get, I closed the Bible, I don't want to read it. Because I don't want to see God that way. Until I realized, wait a minute, if God is love in the New Testament, then God is love in the Old Testament. And when I began to look through that eyes, those eyes, I began to understand some things. So everything you've got to filter through God's goodness and God's love, even what we're going to talk about tonight. But we have to talk about this because it's in the Bible and we've got to talk about it because it's in here for our protection. And if we're afraid of talking about it, then we will be, we'll walk away from the protection which has been put there by a good God who loves us. Everybody with me? All right. Okay. So what we've been talked about last time is the comfort or the goodness of God underlies everything. God's for you beyond what you can begin to imagine. All right, now let's go, but look, let's go to, it says, but what about the severity of God? Consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, they have felt His severity. But on those who continue, who, what God gave towards us was His goodness, which we will enjoy if we continue in His goodness. Well, let's see what we're talking about here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're talking about living a separated life. Well, why do that? I mean, and this is one of the real dangers that's being taught in the body of Christ today. It is a heresy. It is, I believe, one of the major deceits that Paul talks about in his letters to Timothy that's going to come in the last ages. Because there's teaching out there 
that the grace of God means because God is gracious and God is love, basically we can do whatever we want because we've been freed from the law. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. And as a result, because we're under grace and because God is so loving and God is so comforting and God is so much on our side, essentially there's nothing you can do that's going to get God angry or upset. Well, there's nothing you can do that's going to get God to lose His temper. It's gone so far that there's a major church out there teaching and a well-known preacher teaching that because, see, if you keep moving this out, the ultimate extent is where it's gotten to, well, there, there's no hell then either. Because God is so loving and God is so gracious, He would never send anybody to hell. So we don't understand how, but somewhere, somehow, even if it's right at the entrance of it, God's going to rescue everybody out of hell. But the Bible doesn't teach that. But that's what happens when you start taking a principle and instead of, instead of teaching out of God's Word what God says, you start taking a principle and you try to make God's Word justify your principle. And you start deciding what God's like. You know what? There's a term for that in the Bible. It's called idolatry. Because idolatry is when you design your own God. Idolatry is when you form your own God. It may not be a statue that's in the corner of your living room that you bow down over, but it can be just as much of an idol in your mind. When you form, but God must be like this. Therefore, if God must be like this, I start relating to the God that I have in my mind of what He's like, and I stop looking to what God says He's like in His Word that He's given to us. And when, I, when, when it's an idol in my mind, then ultimately I'm God in my life. Because I'm the one that made the God. And that's what's behind all this. That's what Satan is after. Same thing that happened in the garden. Except it's dressed up in church. It's dressed up in teachings on grace and love. But ultimately, it's idolatry, and it's no different than what Satan brought into the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. So we've got to see what God says about himself, but then you've got to take it in the whole context, the whole message of the Bible, and who God is. And that's what we're going to endeavor, at least to, to, to begin to tackle tonight. Okay, so, where did I tell you to go? First Corinthians chapter 3. I just didn't get there yet. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul. This is a man that not only wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but went through all kinds of incredible things to do it. And we may look at some of them before we're done tonight. Here he's writing to a church in Corinth that was way off track. They were very carnal. The gifts of the Spirit were operating in great abundance, but they become so proud of their spirituality that they had told the Apostle Paul that founded them he wasn't spiritual enough to come there. So they would not let him into the church he founded. Whew. Imagine telling Pastor Sam you couldn't come here. I can't even imagine Paul. Okay, so the Apostle Paul is addressing this issue and he's explaining to them the church is based on Christ, not him. I planted and Apollos watered. 
but God's the one that caused the, caused the increase. And he says, verse 11, no other foundation can anyone lay or that which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation, verse 12, with gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Is that tomorrow? I mean, what day is it? Well, it's the day of the Lord. We'll declare it because it will be revealed by fire. So there's coming a day when our works, not the works by which you got saved, because we're not saved by works, but once you're saved, you're saved unto good works. There are things we're supposed to be doing. There are responsibilities and assignments that each one of us has been given, then there are general responsibilities that we have. And what he's saying, there's going to come a day when those works will be evaluated. It says they will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work what sort it is. So there's going to come a day when what you've done on this earth for him will be tested. Not by your standard, not by my standard, but it will be tested by his standard, which he describes as fire. Now, what does fire do? Fire burns up certain things and leaves other things. Notice he talks about the different types of works that will be evaluated by that fire. Some will be gold, some will be silver, some will be precious stones. What happens when gold, when it's exposed to fire? What The dross gets separated out, the impurities get separated out, and you're left with just the pure gold. That's what happens when silver is subjected to fire. Precious stones, when they're subjected to fire, nothing happens to them because they're stronger than the, pre- than the fire. So those speak of things that we do for Him that will be either purified in this day or they'll be proven to be precious stones that, that, that there's no change that needs to be made to them. But then there's some of these works that'll be wood. What happens to wood when it gets exposed to intense fire? What happens to hay? What happens to straw? Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Look at verse 14. If anyone's work which has been built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So this evaluation is for the purpose of giving rewards for the work that we've done for him. Now, that ties in to what we're talking about because every day we make choices about what we're going to do with our time, what we're going to do with the promptings of the Spirit, what we're going to do with His Word, what we're going to do with the the responsibilities that He's given us. Every day we make choices, and what what the Bible teaches us is what we need to learn to keep in mind is in making those choices what ultimately is going to be the result of those choices. Now I'm going to mention an example which is not that popular to mention right now at this time of year. And I don't particularly want to mention it, but it, it fits. So I'm not looking at anybody. If I did, I'd have to look at myself. But this is a time of year when there just tends to be more goodies around. Food. Desserts. Walk in the office and there's something usually out on the table. There were little candies out there today. Yesterday, there were, we had a, I had a meeting with some local pastors and we had some... Uh, some Danish and things left over, so it sat out on the table, but not for long. (laughs) And so I walk by it, and it calls to me. 
I taste good. I'm sweet. You've been working hard. You need to give yourself a break today. Oh, a little bite won't hurt. Did you ever notice food talks? Yeah, it talks to you. It can be loud. Now, I don't always do this, but what I've done before, and I'm working on for this holiday, is to set my mind to remind myself that no matter what that food says, no matter what rationale I can come up for eating it, there's an inevitable law of medicine or biology that whatever I put in me will show up somewhere if I don't burn it off. It's not like, you know, after coming through the house, I don't know where all this weight came from. I just, you know, it just dropped on me. No, it didn't. It's a result of putting in more calories than I knew it wasn't going to be popular, than, than I burned off. I've forgotten why I got off on this. Oh, okay. But what I've learned will help me to control it is reminding myself, I can take a, I can eat that donut. But if I really want to lose those five pounds, or if I really want to close my belt one notch, if I really want to do... See, I've determined I will not change the size of my waist and my clothes. So if I put on weight, I'm going to get uncomfortable, but I'm not buying larger clothes. That's the ultimate pressure on me. If I get to the point I can't button my pants, then I'm going to either have to suffer walking around with my pants unbuttoned or I'm going to have to lose some weight. I put that pressure on, ultimate pressure on myself. I won't tell you where it is right now. But here's my point. That, un- that understanding that if I eat that donut, I can enjoy it for a moment, but eventually... It's going to cost me something. Do I want to pay that? And I decide it now when I'm about to eat the donut. Everybody, I didn't say agree with me. I don't say you like it, but you understand. On an eternal scale, that's what he's talking about. When you've got a choice whether to be faithful with something God's given you to do or not do it, understand that that decision you're making has enough consequences other than in that moment. Because there's going to come a day when the, what you've been given to do is going to be evaluated with some kind of holy fire. My own personal belief and it's not, not this, is that it's just his eyes. Just his eyes will burn through all the other stuff except did you do what I called you yeah, I did good. Thing. Did you do what I called you? Did I, but I, but I, did you do what I called? We know an example of that because in Matthew seven, Jesus said, "There's many of you going to come to me and says, Lord, Lord, I did great things in your name. Cast out demons, raise the dead, heal the sick. I did great, wonderful works in your name." He just says, "Yeah, I don't know you. You who practice lawlessness." You did great things for me, but you did what you decided to do, not what I called you to do. So it's not the works in themselves, it's whether they're the works he gave us to do. So there's going to come a day, and Paul governed himself by this. 
Because at the end of his life, he said, I've run my race, I've finished my course. There is therefore laid up for me a crown of righteousness and for all those who love his coming. So Paul was motivated in the choices he made to get up every day and do what he was supposed to do, to fight with the beasts at Ephesus, to fight, to go through all the things he went through. One of his motivations was, but I'm doing this because I know at the end, if I'm faithful, no matter what I got to go through, no matter how hard it is, if I'm faithful to do what I'm supposed to do, there's a reward waiting for me at the end. That motivated him. That affected his choices and decisions to live a separated life and not just do what he wanted to do. Verse 15, But if anyone's work is burned, it will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So it's not talking about whether your soul is going to be saved. He's talking about the works that you bring with you to heaven. Don't you know that you're... Uh-oh, that'll get into eating here. We better not get into that. <clears throat> okay. All right. Now, let's go. That's, that's the standard, and there are other places we can look. That's a standard by which we walk in a, in a sense of the fear of the Lord. It's a, it's a, 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 a respect and an, an understanding that at some point... I'm going to give an account for how I conducted myself here. I'm not only going to give an account for my own life, but I'm going to give an account for my family. Not for choices they made, but for my doing what I was supposed to do for them. I'm going to have to give an account for you. That's why the Bible says, don't make it hard on the guy that has to do the account for you. I've got to give an account for you. I can't account for choices you make but I've got to give an account for whether I've done what I'm supposed to do for you in, in, in feeding you, in guiding you, protecting you. That's, a, that's why it says in James chapter 3, verse 1, don't desire to be a teacher. Don't ask for it. It's a tremendous privilege, but don't ask for it because you need to make sure you're willing to take on the responsibility that goes with it. And I remind myself of that regularly in prayer. I remind myself of that regularly in prayer. So there's a sense in which the, 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 the fear of the Lord is the fact that I'm just going to have to come and I'm going to come after I've cleaned my room and stand before Dad. I'm going to have to bring these C's and D's home because it says Mom and Dad have to sign the report card and I've got to show it to them. So it's a, it's a sense of recognizing there's one who loves you, there's one who gave his life for you, there's one you're going to have to give an account to for whether you did what you were supposed to do and how well you did it. But there's another level of the fear of the Lord which we really don't hear a lot about because usually when you hear the fear of the Lord talked about, it talks about the awesome reverence for God and it does mean that. But there's some places and some scriptures we're going to look at. I've tried to study it and make it say that, but it doesn't. It says something else. But if we put it in the right perspective, we'll understand why. Let's look now at Matthew chapter 10. Everybody take a deep breath. Say, God loves me, and I love Him, and everything's going to be all right. All right, let's go. The Word of God won't hurt. Oh, it can sting a little bit, but it's the truth. If we know the truth, it will set us free. 
if we do it. What did I tell you? Matthew 10? Okay. Now, Jesus is talking here, starting in verse 16. He's talking about sending them out to accomplish what they were supposed to do. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. See, it feels like that sometime in the world today. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they'll deliver some of you into councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. I thought when we come to the Lord and because we're blessed that everything just goes well and goes easy, you know, and everybody around us just loves and accepts us. No, we're carriers of the gospel. And for some of us, that, require, that may require a course of, of walking with Him and, and fulfilling something that will put you in place where people don't like you. But remember, it's never personal. It's never, it has nothing to do with you. Remember we talked in the beginning that it all has to do with being identified with Him because when you're identified with Him, they treat you on the basis of how they say Him. They don't see you anymore. You can talk to people about God and they'll talk back to you. But the moment you mention Jesus, they treat you on the basis of what they think of Him and you become, they blind to you. So that's what he's talking about there. They're going to throw, some of you are going to get arrested, some of you are going to get persecuted for my sake because you represent me. But when they deliver you up, verse 19, don't worry about how or what you should speak for it will be given you in that hour that you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. I'm going to give you, for a moment, quickly, an example, a story that I heard told by somebody this happened to it. And this was Terry Law, who was the head of a a music group that came out of Oral Roberts University in the the 1980s called uh, Living Sound. And they would go behind the Iron Curtain where, where they, it was illegal to preach the gospel and their music was so good they would be invited to do concerts. And they weren't allowed to have all their calls, but they had subtle ways of doing it. And they were in Moscow for one of these concerts. And he, because I've heard him tell this story, he, three o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on his door and he goes and open and there's the KGB. Get dressed, you're coming with us. And they took him with them. He has no idea. And they bring him down into the basement of their headquarters. And, and they're interrogating him. Why are you really here? Do you represent the government? You're a spy. We know why you're really here. We know you're subversive. All these questions. And he said, all the while they're doing that, I'm sitting there and there's like these lights on me and I can vaguely see there's a guy in a leather coat with the standard, you know, right out of the movies, without a, sitting back in the corner with his arms folded not saying anything. And he said, they're pressuring me and pressuring me and pressuring me. He said, look, I want to call the embassy. And they don't answer. They keep pressuring and pressuring and pressuring. And he said, it's, so he's starting to pray in tongues. And he said, suddenly there was a boldness that rose up in him. And he said, I started speaking words out in English that I'd never heard before that almost didn't make sense to me. And I stood up with a boldness and then began to point at them And as I did that, this guy stands up in the corner and moves everybody out of the way. And he looks at him, he says, where did you get a hold of the Russian constitution? He said, what do you mean? He says, you've been quoting to us from the Russian constitution. Get him out of here. And they took him back to his room. What was that? 
When they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak, but it will be given to you in that hour. But it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Say, I don't let that happen. Well, you get in a position where you get arrested by the KGB, and you get out there for God, and you may find yourself in that place. So he's talking here about being different. And because we're different, and because we have an assignment for him, that it might get some people upset, and they'll pressure you, they'll persecute you, they'll come down on you. But he's trying to prepare you for this. It's just exactly what's the basis of our message. Now, brother will deliver brother up to death, and father and child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you that you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, a servant above his master. It's not, is it enough that a disciple, that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master? If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? In other words, they call me the devil, they're likely to call you that too. Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed. Sounds like Matthew, 13, Matthew 5. Nothing hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. That's what he's talking about. Representing him, being bold. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And here's the strength to do it. This is what we're talking about. Do not fear those who can kill the body, the people that were throwing him in jail, the people that were persecuting him. Don't fear those people in the world because all they can do is kill your body. But rather fear him who's able to destroy your soul and send your body to hell. So he's talking about fearing, ultimately fearing God more than you fear men. And he's talking about what's the worst they can do to you? Well, the worst the world can do to you is kill you, your body. But they can't kill your soul and your spirit. But the one who we are to fear does have that power. So he is to have the ultimate respect. He's the ultimate authority we're to look to. He's not saying walk around afraid for your soul. That's not what he's talking about. But this level of fear, what we're going to see, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate net to catch you. When they teach these high wire walkers, high wire, yeah, that's right, the, the tightrope walkers, all right, until they really know what they're doing, or even when they're practicing, there's a net under them. So if they make a slip or fall, they're not going to hit the pavement and get squished. They're going to hit the net. They'll have the experience of falling. They'll know what it's like to make a misstep, but they're not going to be crushed by it because there's a net. And the Bible has a net built in. If we'll respect it, that will keep you from splatting. <laughs> They'll keep you from crashing. It's not what we like to look at, but it's the one God knows works on our flesh ultimately. Doesn't want us to ever get there. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers that were on the verge of compromising because there was pressure put on them to come back under some of the practices of the law to be circumcised, to, be, to practice some of the holy days and do some of the things that there's pressure on that in some Jewish believers today to mix Christianity with Judaism. I don't want to go off on that right now. But that pressure's still out there. And the writer of Hebrews is correcting them by showing them Christ is superior to everything. 
Chapter 1, he's superior to angels. He goes on and says he's superior to, to Melchizedek as a high priest. He goes on and says he's superior to the, to the, to the functions of the tabernacle that we've been studying because he's the, he's the focus of the tabernacle. And having gone through all of those things, he comes now down through chapter 10 and says, verse 35, Therefore, as a result of everything I've said through the first ten and a half chapters, do not cast away your confidence. Because he's talking now to believers that were about to throw away their confidence in Christ. They were about to quit and give up because of the pressure and persecution they'd been under. Because what had happened is these were primarily believers that under the persecution of the first century were scattered out of Jerusalem up into Galatia and other parts of the Christian world at that time. So they were separated from the mother church and from other believers. And once they were separated, they were more vulnerable to attacks of the enemy and attacks of deceit. And that's what was working in on them. So the writer of Hebrews is correcting them. And what he's after is don't throw away your confidence in Christ don't throw it away and he tells them why I'm going to tell you there have been personally times when I've, I've struggled with discouragement because we all have done that because you start looking at the natural evidence and there's a voice telling you it's never going to happen who are you to think you can do this you're not hearing from God. You're just out there on your own. You're making stuff up. You're this. Look at, your, look at this situation. Look at that. Blah, 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 blah. And if you listen to it long enough, faith comes by hearing. You start believing those lies. And almost every time what's brought me out of that is these verses. It jerks the slack. You know what my mother used to say? I'm going to jerk the slack out of you. You know what that is? That's what these verses have done for me. That's that ultimate net when you just want to give up and quit and say it's not going to happen, I'm too this, I'm too old, I'm not going to blah, 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 all that junk. Feeling sorry for yourself, these verses come to me. Do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. That's the part we've been talking about before. But now he goes on. For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So there's a promise that we have after we've done the will of God. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Not just get saved by faith, but we're to live our life by faith. This is not just talking about faith to receive healing, faith to receive provision in your life. This is faith to finish your course. Faith to stay faithful to him when you don't feel right, when nothing's going right, when you can't see anything. It's why do I keep on? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I do what I'm supposed to do? You do it then by faith. See, when I get discouraged, when I want to quit, it's because I'm looking at things in the natural with my natural senses, which is not walking by faith. That's walking by sight. And the way we get through to the end is by walking by faith. The ultimate purpose, the bottom line purpose of faith is not primarily to receive things from God. It's so that we can walk in this life with our eyes on what comes next so that we finish our course, course all the way with joy and succeed. That's the ultimate purpose of faith because faith allows us to see what's there that's coming so we can live here with our eyes on that. And that's really what Hebrews 11 is saying. Now, we do receive things by faith, but, but that's not the primary purpose. 
Let, now the just shall live by faith. But look at this. But if anyone draws back, my soul, this is God speaking, has no pleasure in him. See, my goal is to stand before him. The only thing I really want is to hear some words that mean everything. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Everything's for that. That's a standard I go back to when I don't want to do it, when I want to give up, when I want to get discouraged. No, 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 no. Is that going to keep me from hearing those words? But if I pull back, he says, my soul has no pleasure in him. But the writer says, no, no, I'm encouraged. We're not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. Quickly, Exodus 21. This is, we've been talking about this on Sunday mornings. We were for a while. Talk about God telling Moses to bring the children out to Mount Sinai. He was going to come down on top of it. Well, he comes down with this thunder and lightning and smoke and all of that, and the people get afraid and run away. Over in chapter 21, they tell Moses, look, this is too scary for us. We're going to hide in our tents. You go talk to God and come tell us what he says, and we'll do whatever he says. That's verse 19. And Moses said to the people, do not fear God, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. We've talked about them before. It's two different types of fear. So don't be afraid of God so that you run away from Him, but have a fear of God so that you may be before Him and you may not sin. It's an awareness of who He is. It's kind of like this. And for some of us, this is hard because we didn't have a father that was like this. As parents, we want our children to do what we tell them to do simply because we say so. Stephen, you know, clean your room. You know, do this, do that, you know. All right. If they don't, then there's consequences. They may lose a reward. They don't get their allowance for the week or whatever it is you set up. But there's some things a child can do that a father now speaks to the child in a different tone. It's no longer Johnny. It's Jonathan. It's the whole name, every syllable emphasized, the, vo- vo- the voice changes, the depth changes, the power and emphasis changes. They've gone from being daddy to father. They've operated in a role that's the ultimate authority in that household. And that's done as a point of fear of, uh-oh, I crossed this line there's, it's a reminder there are ultimate consequences for disobeying what Father says. Playing around him, Daddy. Teaching him, Dad. But there comes a point where I'm Father. And that's what this is like. Ultimately, He is the God of our soul. Ultimately, Our lives are in His hands. Well, let's go over quickly. Exodus 
and go to Second um, Corinthians chapter five. Notice Paul, uh, Moses, don't run away from him, but have a holy fear of who he is. Paul's talking here about, if you go back into chapter 4, verse 8, he talks about some of the stuff he went through. He was hard-pressed on every side, he was, but not crushed. He was perplexed. That means there were times Paul didn't know what to do. But he was not in despair. He was persecuted, but didn't feel forsaken. He was struck down, but he was never destroyed. Always carrying in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Goes through some of the things he went through. But he says in verse 16, but I, but I do not lose heart, because I understand this, though the outward man's perishing, the inward man's being renewed day by day. Then he goes on and talks in verse 18 that he has this perspective of faith that we see in Hebrews 11. He says, because we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen, because of the things that are seen are temporary. The stuff I'm going through here is, it's a hand's breath. But how I go through it is eternal. The worst thing you're going through right now is, but how you handle yourself in it is eternal. He goes on to chapter 5 and says, talks about his perspective. If this earthly house is laid down, I have every confidence that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Talking about the heavenly body. Verse 4, for a while in this tent we groan, this body being burdened. He's not talking about sickness and disease. He's talking about the pressures of life, the things that come against you. Weariness, discouragement, just getting tired of doing the same thing over and over again. Talks about the same thing in Romans chapter 8. The groaning of this world that's groaning under sin. And we have to deal with sin all the time. Every time you look, turn on the news, there's some, somebody shooting something. There's some other bad report. There's more pressure on the church. That's just get tired of that stuff. So we groan, being burdened, but because we don't want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that's with the immortal. So that's mortal, but be swallowed up with life. Now he who prepared us for the very thing is God, who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For we're always confident, knowing that while we're home in the body, we're absent the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And again, we walk in this life, not with our eyes here, but with our eyes, our focus, our perspective, our goal, there on the eternal reward, on the eternal house, on this goal. Being confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body, but to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each might receive for the things done in the body according to what He's done, whether good or evil. Evil word there means basically be worthless. Knowing, therefore, the terror or the fear of the Lord. I tried to find in that word that it meant something else, but that's what it means. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we're well known to God, and I trust also well known to your conscience. So what is this fear of the Lord? Is it something that I'm going to run away from? No, it's to be there as the ultimate, the ultimate safety net, to realize, wait a minute, if I just quit, walk away from everything, and do what I, sometimes we all want to do, sometimes, I, that's it, we throw a fit, just, I quit, I throw in the towel, because if we ultimately really do that, you don't want to do that. Because he goes on and else it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Paul said in Romans, we read in the beginning, he said, the Jews, until some of them come back, the Jews who had the opportunity have experienced his severity. Why? Because they rejected the Messiah that he sent. After 
preparation and preparation and preparation. He said, you've received the goodness and the comfort of the Lord because you chose to believe in his goodness and his grace. But don't get so cocky and presumptuous that because you said, well, because I'm in the club, therefore I can do whatever I want because then you're going to go into the same unbelief that the Jews did. And don't forget that severity is out there. Put it another way. You've heard me say it this way. Oh, we have to end. The reason the church is so susceptible to this deception about grace out there is because we forget we live in what I call a parenthesis of time called the church age. The Old Testament, we talked about this when we studied the, the Ark of the Covenant. God's, God is absolute righteousness and holiness. Grace does not mean that He looks the other way. Grace does not mean that God's just kind of gotten mellow later on in the Bible. Grace does not mean that He's just too tired to just really deal hardly with some of those things. Grace does not mean that, but we kind of think that about it because we don't see things getting judged. Psalm 77, we talked about that a few Sundays ago, a number of Sundays ago. The psalmist said, you know, I wonder if God's really still on the throne because I see people getting away with all kinds of things. Ah, until I come into the church and I read his word and realize, oh, there's coming a day. There's coming a day. So we live in this parenthesis. Outside the parenthesis, God is absolutely holy and righteous. He is in the parenthesis, but what keeps that righteousness and holiness from judging us is the parenthesis of grace. It's the mercy seat that covers us from the judgment of the law that's inside the box. You take the mercy seat off and the judgment, because there's some stories we'll see where they took it off and they died on the spot. Because no man can stand under that righteousness. And the grace is what protects. So we're never, ever to forget that that grace is a gift to protect us from the effect of our sin. Because when we do, we begin to take the grace for granted and we presume upon it and we tread it underfoot and we begin to think we have a right to this. And that's when we get in trouble. So the ultimate protection of this level of fear of the Lord is Paul, Moses says, it keeps you from sin. No matter what I may feel like, I'm never going to walk away from him because to walk away from him is to walk into something I don't want to walk into. And the fear of that is an ultimate protection. The fear of that is an ultimate protection. I don't want to even think about getting anywhere near it because I want to be motivated. See, Jesus obeyed his Father because he loved him. He wanted to please his Father because he loved him, not because he was afraid of the consequences of disobeying him. But the ultimate catch as a security to us is to realize that ultimately, if, and I don't want to go to what that is, but if you ultimately walk away, you ultimately do you know, just reject him the way the Jews rejected him, then you fall into the hands of a God you don't want to fall into. He still is a righteous and holy God.
So when we compare the fear of what man can do to us, if I sell God out, from what, from what God can do to us, if I sell man out, it becomes an easy choice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes your word is hard to receive and swallow, but it's still the truth. And I pray, Lord, tonight that every one of us that's heard this, that your spirit would begin to open our eyes to understand both of these sides of you, that because you love us, you're good to us. But because you love us, you also set a standard that you enforce, Lord, that you are ultimately a God of holiness, a God of righteousness, and a God of truth. We thank you for the blending of these things together as your spirit takes the word and works it into our lives and into our hearts. And we thank you for that grace tonight. In Jesus' name.